You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to episode 242 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. When we left off last time, it was December 30th, 1862, and the Union and Confederate armies faced each other about three miles west of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Most historians consider the 30th to be the eve of the Battle of Stones River, But some sharp fighting actually took place that day as the Union right wing came up and pushed forward into position, up against the main rebel line on the southern portion of the battlefield. As the Federals ground forward, the Confederates resisted fiercely, and musketry and artillery fire inflicted numerous casualties that day. So for the soldiers of both sides involved in this combat on that part of the battlefield, December 30th was really the start of the battle. Also on the 30th, the senior Confederate cavalry commander, Joe Wheeler, was harassing Rosecrans' supply line. This came about because Bragg had ordered Wheeler to make a raid into the Federal rear. And so about midnight the night before, Wheeler's 1,600 troopers splashed across Stones River and started north along the Lebanon Pike to make certain that no Yankees were descending upon the rebel army from that direction. But once he saw that there were no Federals to the north, Wheeler shifted west, cutting into the Federal rear, and proceeded to smash enemy wagon trains and capture Union soldiers by the hundreds as he made nearly a full circle around the enemy army. Meanwhile, back on the battlefield at Stones River, the fighting died down by sunset. As darkness covered the winter landscape and the temperatures plummeted below freezing, More than 80,000 Union and Confederate soldiers prepared themselves as best they could for the carnage that was sure to come the next day. That night, both commanding generals assessed the situation and both came to the same conclusion. Defend on the right and hit the enemy's left the next morning, December 31st. In a conference, William Rosecrans outlined his plan. On the Union left, two of Thomas Crittenden's divisions, those of Van Cleve and Wood, would cross the river in a repeat of Harker's movement on the 29th. 
At the same time, in the Federal Center, George Thomas's wing, along with Palmer's division from Crittenden's wing, would advance down the Nashville Pike toward Murfreesboro. Meanwhile, Alexander McCook's wing would hold down the Federal right. Rosecrans didn't personally inspect this section of his line, but he knew it was vulnerable since it wasn't anchored on a terrain feature like a hill or stream. Rosecrans accepted McCook's guesstimate that if the Confederates attacked him, he'd be able to successfully defend that flank for at least three hours while the rest of the army was attacking. Rosecrans later admitted, I trusted General McCook's ability as to position as much as I knew I could his courage and loyalty. It was a mistake. On the other side of the battlefield, Braxton Bragg also planned an attack of his own for the last day of 1862. He ordered Hardy to take Patrick Claiborne's division from the right and shift it across the river, where it would reinforce McCown over on the left end of the rebel line. McCown and Claiborne would kick off the Confederate attack at daylight. Wharton's cavalry would support the infantry's advance. As Bragg later explained it, quote, The attack was then to be taken up by General Polk's command in succession to the right flank, the move to be made to a constant wheel to the right on Polk's right flank as a pivot, the object being to force the enemy back on Stones River and cut him off from his base of operations and supplies by the Nashville Pike. End quote. Now, if you didn't follow all of that, it re- really boiled down to Bragg seeking to smash the Federal right and fold Rosecrans' line in on itself like a closing jackknife. And so as darkness started to settle in on the evening of the 30th, Claiborne's division of Confederates set off on the cold and wet move from one end of the army to the other. They forded Stones River and marched to their assigned position on the rebel left, reaching it after midnight. Campfires were forbidden here for fear of tipping off the Yankees, so Claiborne's weary and shivering men rested as best they could for a few hours. Then the officers got them up at 4.30 a.m. to prepare for the attack. In front of Claiborne's men stretched John McCown's three brigades of rebel troops, led by Brigadier Generals James Raines, Matthew Ector, and Evander McNair. McCown's line extended beyond the Federal right flank. In line and slightly to McCown's right were Claiborne's four brigades, under Brigadier Generals St. John Little, Bushrod Johnson, Lucius Polk, and S.A.M. Wood. Bragg's plan called for McCown's men to lead the attack and Claiborne's troops to support it. The 10,500 Confederates in the two divisions would keep tightly closed up as they smashed the Federal right and then slashed the three and a half miles through Rosecrans' rear to the Nashville Pike. Once the rebels reached the pike, the Yankees' line of retreat would be cut off and they would be trapped against the river. At a quarter to six on the last morning of the year, General Hardy made one final check with McCown and Claiborne to make sure everything was ready. Then shortly after 6 a.m., McCown's men stepped off and started forward.
Over in the federal lines, McCook's men were just awakening on that frigid Wednesday morning. McCook's right was held by Richard Johnson's division of three brigades. Brigadier General August Willick's outfit faced southwest along the Franklin Pike, while Brigadier General Edward Kirk's command faced south and southeast, with its right on the road. To Kirk's rear ran a farm road, Gresham Lane, which ran north to the Wilkinson Turnpike. In reserve a short distance back stood Colonel Philemon Baldwin's brigade. There was no sense of urgency amongst Johnson's Federals, as they awakened and prepared breakfast and leisurely drank their hot coffee on that frosty morning. The Confederates couldn't have planned a more complete surprise as they rolled forward against the unsuspecting Yankees. At about 25 minutes after 6, the Confederate storm broke upon Johnson's division of Federals. An officer in an Ohio regiment in Willick's Brigade reported, quote, The enemy advanced on our position with four heavy lines of battle with a strong reserve held in mass. End quote. Union drummers beat the long roll and desperate officers hastily ordered their men into line, but the Federal brigades had only partially formed before McCown's rebels hit them. A soldier in an Indiana regiment described the scene by saying, quote, Bull Run, you all know what it means. Now McCook's Corps had a second and improved addition. Confusion arose. A terrible panic gripped the troops. End quote. As the full fury of the Confederate onslaught broke upon them, Willick and Kirk both tried to rally their men. But Willick's horse was shot and fell on top of him, and in the confusion he was left behind and captured by the advancing rebels. Kirk put together a thin defensive line that made a brief stand, but it broke apart when he fell, mortally wounded. As their attack rolled forward relentlessly and scattered the enemy troops who attempted to put up some resistance, the close-quarters fighting caused some serious losses among McCown's Confederates, but the onrushing rebel tide proved irresistible. The Confederates captured so many prisoners that they simply ordered the crowds of defeated Yankees to march themselves to the rear, rather than taking away men from the attacking units to guard them. Colonel R.W. Harper of the 1st Arkansas Rifles of McNair's Brigade remarked that, quote, Nothing could withstand the fury of the onset. The enemy's lines were broken, and the rout, so far as my observation reached, became general. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. 
Every week we tackle fascinating topics. We go back to source materials in their original languages. And we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. As the survivors of Willicks and Kirk's shattered formations fled northwestward, McCown's Confederates followed them. McCown admitted, quote, the force of the enemy to my front prevented me throwing forward my left wing as soon as instructed by Lieutenant General Hardee. And so, instead of wheeling right according to Bragg's plan, McCown's division sidled left as it pressed after the retreating Federals. So, in your mind's eye, picture McCown's brigades veering off, but here comes Claiborne's division, coming up and still advancing straight ahead which meant Claiborne now found himself in the rebel front line to McCown's right instead of still following behind McCown. That meant that not only was Bragg's plan to wheel right falling apart, but for the rest of the battle, McCown's and Claiborne's divisions would fight side by side rather than following each other across the battlefield as planned. And so the Confederate attack had been underway less than an hour, and already the plan of a concentrated push up to the Nashville Pike had broken down. And so Patrick Claiborne's four brigades swung into action astride Gresham Lane. This movement brought them into contact with the enemy troops of a Federal Division commander by the name of Jefferson Davis. This Jefferson Davis... Jefferson Columbus Davis, has been a part of our story since Fort Sumter, when he was a member of the Fort's Federal Garrison there. And most recently on the podcast, as you guys will probably recall from the Perryville story arc, he shot and mortally wounded fellow Union General Bull Nelson. Anyhow, here at Stones River, Davis's division was deployed north of Kirk's position. Colonel Sidney Post's brigade held the division's right, Colonel William Carlin's brigade the center, and Colonel William Woodruff's the left. Post's brigade faced the greatest peril as the retreat of Johnson's division exposed it to destruction by the advancing Confederates. Realizing the severity of the threat, Post pulled his troops back astride Gresham Lane and brought up a Wisconsin battery of artillery and Colonel Michael Gooding's 22nd Indiana to anchor the new line along a fence row. 
In the rear, Colonel Baldwin had heard the firing and formed his brigade west of Gresham Lane. From his position near a stand of cedar, Baldwin observed the fugitives from Johnson's division fleeing across his front. At this point, Richard Johnson himself appeared and sent Baldwin's regiments forward to defend a fence line. Taking position behind the fence, Baldwin's Federals faced what one Hoosier described as a, quote, stock field, which isn't hard to imagine if you've seen a cornfield in the wintertime. In any case, Baldwin's line along the fence was loosely linked with Post's position to his left. Claiborne's Confederates struck just as the Federals got into position. In response to a call for help from McCown, St. John Little pushed his Arkansans toward the fence. His men advanced to within 100 yards of Baldwin's Yankees. Little remembered how the Federal fire, quote, was very trying, my men, seeing the great advantage to the enemy and the certain destruction awaiting them, dropped down, almost as if by common con consent, on their faces and commenced firing with great accuracy at the enemy. Meanwhile, Bushrod Johnson's Tennesseans clashed with post-Federals astride Gresham Lane. Colonel Gooding of the 22nd Indiana recalled how, quote, the enemy made their appearance in great numbers, advancing in solid column. The 5th Wisconsin Battery opened what the 17th Tennessee's commander called, quote, unquote, a galling fire. Nonetheless, the 17th, according to another of its officers, pushed forward, quote, in fine style to within 150 yards of the battery. We halted and engaged them for some time to good effect. On the other side of Gresham Lane, Post's Federals and Bushrod Johnson's Confederates fought what Colonel John Fulton of the 44th Tennessee described as, quote, a very severe engagement, fighting some 20 minutes before the enemy gave way. By that time, Jefferson Davis had other problems, because now the rebels brought more units into action against his line. Sam Wood's brigade attacked Carlin's Yankees, while Woodruff's Federals faced the first elements of Leonidas Polk's corps in the form of Colonel J.Q. Loomis's brigade. Much of the Federal line stood in amongst the cedar trees and thickets, which afforded some protection and also helped slow down and break up the attacking Confederate formations. According to Jefferson C. Davis, quote, these brigades were fully prepared for the attack and received it with veteran courage. The conflict was fierce and the extreme on both sides. Our loss was heavy, and that of the enemy no less. The fierce combat here raged for half an hour as the Federals fought stubbornly to hold back the enemy, and the Confederates doggedly tried to maintain the momentum of their assault. McNair's brigade from McCown's division shifted right to support St. John Little's Arkansans of Claiborne's division, and this finally caused McCown to wheel his units to the right and proceed with the original plan. McNair's rebels formed for an assault that would hit the flank of Baldwin's Federals. The Confederates' appearance caused the Yankees to waver, which prompted a rebel charge against the fence. Baldwin's line broke, and the Federals panicked and fled north. 
Colonel William Barry of the 5th Kentucky, U.S., said simply, quote, The right of the division was completely crushed in. Baldwin's collapse on the right of his line unhinged Jefferson C. Davis's entire position. Little's brigade of Arkansans swept over the fence, with Little himself among the first rebels across. Post-Federals astride Gresham Lane fell back, covered by the bayonets of the 59th Illinois. To Post's left, Carlin's brigade gave way under pressure from its front and right, while Woodruff, next in the collapsing Federal line, extricated his men from the unfolding disaster and withdrew northward. For most of the Federals, however, retreat soon turned into rout, with many of the men not stopping their flight until they reached the Nashville Pike, three miles to the rear. It's estimated that a quarter of Jefferson C. Davis's division had fallen in those 30 minutes of desperate, ferocious combat. By 8 a.m., though, two hours into Bragg's assault against the Federal right, the Confederates had routed two enemy divisions and now pressed forward toward the vital Nashville Pike. Despite some hiccups, Bragg's plan was working. But with most elements of the two armies still unengaged, the battle was only beginning. That meant that there was a lot of hard fighting still to be done. And so this New Year's Eve day promised to ring out 1862 on a terrible, bloody note. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is a back issue of Blue and Gray magazine. Back in 2012, Volume 28, Number 6 of Blue and Gray magazine was dedicated to the Battle of Stones River, with the main article written by Jim Lewis, a ranger at Stones River National Battlefield. But the real reason we're recommending this back issue of Blue and Gray is that the 18 or so maps are top-notch and are a great way to track the action during the course of the fighting on each day of the battle. So that's Volume 28, Issue Number 6 of Blue and Gray Magazine. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we bring down the curtain on this show, we wanted to share a few programming notes with you guys. First of all, we're planning on releasing the next Stones River episode in just a few days, on July 4th. And then we'll wrap up this story arc next weekend with the July 8th show. But then we'll be off the air the next two weekends in July. So if you're listening to the shows here in real time, that means that after finishing with Stones River on July 8th, the next new episode won't be out until the last weekend of the month on the 29th. Yep, uh, don't tell anyone, but we're moving again. Not very far. We'll still be here in Colorado. Uh, as some of you may recall, we actually moved across town last July. And we can't quite believe we're moving again so soon. But hopefully this time will be the last time for a while. Especially since at our new place, we can walk out on the patio and have an unobstructed view of the Flatirons and mountains. 
But anyway, the plan for the podcast is that we'll finish up Stones River and then be taking a podcast break for those two weekends here in July as we get ready to move and then actually move. But then, as Tracy said, we'll be back with a new show the last weekend of the month. So there you go. All right. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again in just a few days for the next show when we'll continue telling the story of the Battle of Stones River. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.